Hello, everyone, and welcome to Just Dow It, the podcast for people starting DAOs. I'm Adam Miller, and I'm your host. I'm the founder of MyDAO, which provides legal entity solutions for DAOs. And prior to starting MyDAO, I did consulting for people starting and operating DAOs. We're recording live again, as those of you watching the live stream know, and we'll publish it to our podcast feed later today. Hopefully, we don't have any uh, technical issues, but if we do, I apologize for that. As always, the first half of the pod will be the DAO News Report, where I will summarize recent DAO news, and then Humpty, our guest, and I will talk about the news, and then we'll go into a little bit deeper of an interview with Humpty. Um, don't forget to check out our new DAO Masterclass series, which is also published to the same feeds, hosted by my colleague, Jana, where she interviews DAO lawyers and other professional advisors about interesting topics related to DAOs. So Humpty, welcome back to the show. Would you start by giving us a bit of an introduction to yourself for people who don't know you yet? Sure. Um, I expect a large population not to know me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm Humpty Calderon, a longtime contributor in the Web3 space since before it was called Web3. I entered in 2016 purely as a speculator. I uh, learned about Bitcoin, thought that might be something cool to diversify my portfolio with. And uh, as many people do, I think we fall deep down the rabbit hole once we understand both the technical, financial, and philosophical applications of that technology. Um, started my first business in Web3 in 2017, got that, got acquired in 2020. Um, have been since more interested in the decentralized identity and data space, um, have contributed to several different projects and products, uh, in particular over at Ontology, working on OntID, working on OScore, Onto Wallet, and more recently, I think what more pe most people would recognize me for is the work that I did over at Orange Protocol, which was uh, released last year, and really, I would call V1 of what we're doing over at Mosaic now, which is the new company that I formed, which is really looking at how decentralized data could be used to create composable experiences, but also how it could be used to reward people better. Yep. Awesome. Love it. All right. Well, we will go deeper into Mosaic later on in the episode. We'll also talk a bit about what Humpty and I have seen change in the world of DAOs over the past year or so since Humpty was last on the show and where we see DAOs going and, and how we think they can best uh, succeed. So turning to the, the uh, Just DAO It News report, um, again, Humpty, let's, uh, I'll go over these stories and let's try to uh, break them down, agree, disagree, think about what's relevant about them for people starting DAOs or, or leading DAOs. Um, first story of the week. This is from Reuters. Uh, big news. Ripple Labs notches landmark win in SEC case over XRP cryptocurrency. So if anyone hasn't heard about this yet, th this is huge. It doesn't specifically apply only to DAOs, but we'll talk about at least one example of how it's already potentially applies to a DAO, um, but it applies to all of us in Web3. So uh, this is a, a case that's been uh, being uh, uh, adjudicated for a long time. It's Ripple versus the SEC. The SEC sued Ripple and basically said, your token is a security, therefore everything going on here is illegal, you're not following the right rules, et cetera. And if the SEC won, you know, that would be the end of Ripple and uh, potentially the end of a lot of crypto projects because a lot of crypto projects have tokens and in a lot of cases, they're in some ways similar to the XRP token. 
Um, what's awesome is that the judge actually really understood crypto, dug into the, the true merits of the case, the nature of XRP, and handed down a decision that is mostly positive for Ripple and for Web3. So this was huge, no, uh, huge news. It could have very much gone in a different direction. I'm going to just try to summarize it for people, the judge's decision. Uh, basically, what the judge said was just a token by nature of being a token doesn't make it a security. And just because you bought that token doesn't make, a, make it a security, right? If I'm like, hey, I have these Atom tokens, Humpty, you want some? Sure, I'll buy some. That's not a security because I, I haven't created the circumstances around which something would be considered a security, which is giving Humpty the expectation of profiting off of that token and an expectation that I'm going to be doing a lot of work to make that token more valuable so that he will profit off of it. Um, if on the other hand, I'm running a business called Adam Business and I create an Adam token and I say, hey, Humpty, come buy this token because you're going to get rich off of it, then that is a security. So what the judge is saying is it depends more on the nature of the transaction itself, not just the underlying token. And I think that's what all, all of us in Web3 were really hoping for was for some recognition that you can't just treat every single token the same. It's got to depend on the circumstances and not only the circumstances of like, what is that project actually doing? How is that token actually used? But also like how, what, what was the nature of the transaction? Like buying an NFT on OpenSea probably that just doesn't feel like a security, right? That's not like buying a stock. At the same time, if I have an NFT project and I'm like, hey, everyone come buy my NFTs because you're going to make a lot of money. You know, come invest in my NFTs. Well, then that transaction is a security. So really awesome case. And yeah, we'd love to get your thoughts on it, Humpty, as well. Yeah, you know, I think it's an interesting distinction, right, um, to make. And I think it's one that for a while has been debated, obviously, within our circle here in the Web3 space uh, and seemly, seems also, you know, in the in the legal space. It is... It's just what <laughs> what this brings to mind is the influencers, and I'll put that in really big quotes, uh, that were in the space. I know early when I was coming in in 2016, probably even before that, uh, it just was not in my radar. And more recently in 2020, um, people that were hired to shill, you know, a particular token. It is really interesting the narratives that they use to drive you know, attention, hype to a certain project, a certain token. I wonder how all of that will be, like what the fallout to that's going to be. That's really what I'm curious about. Um, as far as like the nature of tokens, I think to you and certainly to me, it's it's not a big surprise that not everything is a financial instrument. Um, I think several projects made it very clear from the very beginning that these tokens were valueless that and then inherently then any value accrued after that was just speculative it was not at all anything to do with the actual utility of the token and so it's great to see a judge um make that distinction and uh, rule on the case based on that distinction too yep yeah totally it's awesome and you know at its core a token is like a spreadsheet right? It's literally just keeping track of rows where each row is like a wallet address. And then the next column to the side of that wallet address is how many, what, what's the number, right? And so right. To, to say that like 
that software running on a distributed computer is always a security would be ridiculous. Um, well, so, you know, I think that if you if you look at the narrative of them being valueless governance tokens, you know, the value then the utility is you're accrual of these tokens and the number of tokens, right? If you consider yourself a token whale, like I have a lot of tokens in my possession is because I want to impact the way that this project will operate. So I want to have that uh, centralization of power, if you will, based on what I believe to be important for what you're doing and the ecosystem as a whole. I'll use, um, I mean, Uniswap would be one. Uh, Yearn would be the best example, in my opinion, because I think Andre came out from the very beginning and said, these are valueless token. They're zero, worth zero. Um, if I collected, say, a million of those tokens, I wanted to have the biggest voice in that space. It wasn't because I believe that to be uh, worth X amount based on the uh, number of tokens that I uh, was able to uh, purchase for myself. Uh, so it, that's just really interesting. And then to, to, to maybe even um, riff on that a bit more, Andre himself didn't even have uh, any tokens allocated to himself. He had to ask uh, the community pretty please if they could issue more tokens afterwards so that he himself, mm. who was building this, could have a voice in that governance. So it's just really yeah. interesting overall to look at uh, how we are now able to make that distinction. And hopefully many more projects in the future can be very clear from the beginning so that they also fall within the utility case and not the security case, which I think for most projects is the way that they're being used. Yeah. And by the way, I think it's okay for tokens to have value, right? I, I don't think a project has to say these tokens are valueless to avoid securities laws. You know, it's okay, for example, let's say you're that person who has a million governance tokens over urine. There is some value in having the right to govern urine right? Have 1% or 10% or whatever it is. And I actually think this is one of the really cool innovations or, or transformations that's coming from DAOs is we effectively now have nonprofits with a market cap, right? Nonprofits that can sell something like shares, but that all it represents is governance rights, right? And, and by selling those governance rights, they're actually raising money that they can then use to go after their mission. And there's still a big difference between a nonprofit selling governance rights that, yeah, they might rise in value, but the nonprofit is not acting primarily to drive the value of that token up. They're never going to distribute dividends because a nonprofit cannot distribute dividends. And so for the first time in history, we have nonprofits that can do the same thing that for-profits can do, which is sell part of their governance rights, but not ownership because it's a nonprofit to raise money. And I think that's huge. And I think it's even okay. I mean, look, neither of us are lawyers. I don't think you're a lawyer. I'm, I'm definitely not a lawyer. And obviously none of this is ever legal advice, but I, I don't think just because something that a governance token can rise in value, just like with XRP, XRP rose in value a ton after this court decision came out and very, very well might keep going up. That doesn't make it a security, right? The judge said it depends on the nature of the transaction in which you buy it. Um, so I think even in the case of, of DAOs with tokens that people expect to rise in value, if you sell them the right way, you can still avoid having them be classified as securities by the SEC. All right. The next story, which is uh, very uh, related because it's about the SEC and a DAO. Uh, this is from Cointelegraph. And the headline is, Barnbridge DAO calls halt to all work on DeFi protocol amid SEC probe. So what happened here was uh, a person in the Discord 
said, uh, hi, I'm Douglas Park. I'm the duly elected legal counsel to Barnbridge Dow. I'm letting you know that the Securities and Exchange Commission is investigating Barnbridge Dow and individuals associated with the Dow. Because the SEC's investigation is ongoing and non-public, I am limited in the information that I will share publicly. He goes on to say the following two people will not comment on the investigation. I think they're two founders of the project. Thanks for your understanding. He says, everyone, stop working on Barnbridge. Take all your money out of the liquidity pools. Like, do nothing. Now, uh, on one hand, you know, not that surprising, and, and especially because the the product they offer is a financial product, right? They're offering this token that allows DAOs to uh, try to mitigate the effect of inflation and volatility by kind of spreading their assets over a pool. Um, so it's a financial product of some kind, and whether or not it's a security, I think, is a different question. Um, the reason this became a bit more of a story is people came, in the community came out and said, wait a second, how do we know that this is, first of all, really Doug, the lawyer? Uh, how do we know that if it really is the person who supposedly is a lawyer, that he really is our lawyer? And this isn't some kind of rug where someone's just coming in and lying to all of us so that the founders and Doug or whoever can run away with all the money and make it look like it was because of the SEC. You know, the lawyer didn't, there was no proof offered. There's no a copy of a letter from the SEC. I think what's so scary about this is that I, I, no, no one knows if is there supposed to be a letter? Is, is this something that the SEC even announces in a manner that everyone would be able to verify and validate that they're actually being investigated? So it's lots of unknowns here. And I think this is one challenge that does come up a lot in DAOs, um, at least when things shit really hits the fan, is like, how do you know that the person you think you're talking to in Discord is really... The, the person that they say they are in the first place. And if you don't know that, how can you really know anything else? So um, that's where a lot of the drama is coming from and curious to get your thoughts. I wonder actually, even if Mosaic, the project you're working on, uh, is part of a, a solution to this kind of problem. Yeah, you know, I, I guess my familiarity with this is as much as I think I saw on Twitter. Uh, I guess now this is making more sense. Uh, Lord Tyler, whoever um, was going by that pseudonym, um, made a post on Twitter saying I'm ceasing all work. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be working on Barnbridge. Um, that's the extent of my, my knowledge of this, but um, yeah, you know, I think this hits on at least the point you were making, I think in terms of who is Doug Park um, hits on something really interesting, which is identity in a digital space, especially in one where we can be pseudonymous because there is no connection to our real world identity. And this is certainly something like a problem space that I was working on uh, with Ontology, looking at decentralized identifiers. And in their case, their um, implementation is called ID, but there's just so many different types of uh, uh, DIDs based off of the W3C standard um, where we could use some sort of identity that has been verified. Now, whether that uses KYC uh, or some other way of verifying, that really depends on the issuer, that depends on the verifiers, how much of their real identity needs to be attached to that. But at the same time, having a lot of those associations and uh, things be private, right? They're encrypted. Um, it's, it's interesting because I think that this is going to be a bigger and bigger problem moving into the future uh, with Web3. And I think even to some degree, we saw how being pseudonymous could negatively impact 
the social space in the traditional Web2 social space, right? There's trolls, people who hide behind avatars and fake identities to, um, you know, put, you know, basically do fear, fear tactics and other just nefarious activities against uh, you know, different groups uh, and people. And so there needs to be a better way to ensure that the people who are, um, you know, in the space have some sort of verification and more importantly, are earning some sort of reputation so that you know that these people aren't just, you know, are who they claim to be, but also are reputable individuals, right? Um, and so to that point, I think the work that we did at Orange Protocol was really interesting because it allowed for the community to really attest to someone's reputability, right? Or a project to attest to a user's reputability on their platform based on certain activities on that platform. And I think even Mosaic extends that even a little bit more where before with Orange Protocol, a uh, project could say, okay, I'd like a group of my users to be segmented by this type of activity and I want to reward them for that activity. You know, we were do issuing credentials and those credentials could be used for accessing different types of experiences or a, you know, to be a beta user on a new platform, whatever. Um, with Mosaic, now we're allowing not just the project to kind of dictate that from the very beginning in terms of the way that users should be segmented, but also for the community to go in there and say, oh, I think that this could be improved by making certain changes in the way that we uh, are grouping these users uh, together, uh, the way that we're uh, looking at the data that we're using to make these decisions, or the way that we are further segmenting them based on a ranking system of how they're using that platform. Um, so it's it's really interesting. This uh, you know community verified identity, uh, community verified reputation, uh, and then reputation weighted uh, experiences, even reputation weighted voting, which was like a big thing. Uh, back in 2020 and 2021 uh, it's the reason why Orange Protocol was born, right? And why Mosaic continues to build in that space. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just to get back onto topic here, I think it's an interesting issue, you know, uh, people's identities in the uh, d digital space and more probably interesting and complex in the decentralized space. So uh, I'm yeah. really excited so for the different projects and individuals that are working to solve some of these challenges. Yeah. So if I try to break that down and really summarize kind of how these technologies are going to help with this type of situation, um, you know, what I'm thinking is so a tool like Discord or wherever you're having your, your conversation needs to allow for some kind of digital signature. Right. And maybe Discord won't do it. Maybe we need to use other tools so that someone can sign the message where he's saying, hey, I'm the lawyer, proving that the person writing the message owns a particular wallet. And then the DID, the distributed ID service that you were talking about a couple minutes ago, um, would connect that wallet with an actual person or at least an identity, which is like a, uh, you don't, maybe don't know their real name, but you know that it's the same person who also did these 50 other things in Web3 or in the rest of their life. Maybe you've even put a, a, a degree you know, from a college on the ID. And then finally, you have these reputation systems so that you can also go see what has this person who says they're the lawyer and we verified that they probably are that lawyer. What has this person done in this DAO in the past? Oh, well, everyone has verified that they did all the legal work 
that led up to like the the environment that we have today in this DAO. And so you put all those things to get those three things together. And now when someone actually when po someone posts something like that to a discord, you know that it really is who they say they are. And they really are the person that you're expecting them to be. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a fair summary. I remember mm -hmm. just to look at the discord, um, you, I guess, case uh, use case is um, James Young, the co-founder and CEO over at um, Collabland, he had mentioned uh, being uh, fairly close to the CEO of Discord and how at one point they were considering using DIDs and VCs to mm. attest user identities and um, you know credentialing. So I don't know where that ended up. Uh, obviously, so much has changed since I had that conversation about a year and a half ago. Uh, but it, you know, I think discord and like many other social platforms they can benefit from this type of not just robust but um cross compatible identities uh because the thing with dids right and these w3c standards is that they're open standards so the identity that i have been issued from what plat one platform isn't necessarily just locking me in to my identity to that one platform, which is the case for most social, uh, you know, social systems today, uh, social uh, media systems today. One project to look at that I think w one has been pretty um, kind of a, has is pretty far along in terms of using DIDs and now has been pretty uh, vocal about some of the things that they're testing these credentials for is LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, or should I say mm. Microsoft, has for a long time been a contributor to the to the DID space, um, you know, through the W3C and the Decentralized Identity Foundation. Um, and they have been implementing those identities uh, in, in their products. With LinkedIn, and I think this is a really interesting use case because I think many people do lie about their uh, credentials on LinkedIn, is now yeah. you can actually uh, link your credentials using verifiable credentials. Mm. So I know I completed a course over at um, Wharton uh, School of Business recently, and that was issued as a credential. And I thought that was pretty <laughs> impressive. That is really cool. I'm going to have to look into, I have a cybersecurity certification. So now I want to see if I can get that uh, verified and put onto my, my profile. All right, let's turn to the next story. We have a couple stories about uh, the topic of hyperstructures. And the first uh, story, this is a blog article uh, on a guy named Jacob on his blog. You can find it at jacob.energy. And uh, the headline is hyperstructures, um, but I'll read the, the subtext. Uh, after spending two years working on Zora, I've come to realize how distinct our approach is. This difference comes from a fundamentally new mental model of what's possible and already happening with crypto protocols. The nature of crypto protocols opens up radically expansive new models to create invaluable public infrastructure. This view is so distinct that I think it warrants new language. In this essay, and it's long, I outline the concept of hyperstructures, what they are, how they work, and why they will be the basis of the internet for the decades to come. So I want to give, and actually, let me read one more thing, which is uh, the definition of a hyperstructure, according to Jacob, uh, crypto protocols that can run for free and forever without maintenance, interruption, or intermediaries. Okay. 
first of all, Zora is a is a for anyone who doesn't know is a pretty well known um, uh, project or organization uh, in Web three that's built a lot of really interesting things, including uh, the uh, infrastructure for Nouns DAO and the Nouns Builder. If anyone wants to check out that really interesting model for DAOs, um, so uh, what Jacob goes on to talk about is something that I've thought about a bit too, although I haven't given it a name. And I've talked to some leading lawyers in the space as well, including a guy named David Kerr um, about this topic, which is there is a difference between a protocol which is governed, which I think is what Jacob's calling a hyperstructure here, and a DAO. And the difference in my view and taking some things from this article and from my prior conversations is, is intention. And, and so I like that Jacob calls this a mental model. He's not saying this is necessarily like a legal, a legal opinion or something. It's a mental model. The difference is think about uh, something like uh, the underlying protocols of the internet, like HTTP, right? Hypertext transfer protocol. Um, it's not, HTTP is not an organization. It's, it's just not. It, it's, it's, a, it's a protocol, which is like a tool, a shared tool that we all use literally all day, every single day. And all of our computers and AIs use as well, even when there's no people involved. And HTTP needs to be governed. So there is a group of people that gets together and votes on making changes to the protocol so that it can improve over time. But that group isn't necessarily an organization, right? It's just stakeholders in the project, in HTTP, in the protocol that govern its future development. And I think what is being described in this article is an on-chain version of HTTP. So it's a protocol that, unlike HTTP, because it's on-chain, can be governed through cryptographic voting, where it's literally impossible to upgrade the protocol without all of the stakeholders, which instead of being, you know, I would guess HTTP has 25 or 50 stakeholders or something. In the case of a protocol on chain, it's very free effectively to allow a million or 10 million or a billion people to govern that protocol together. And that still doesn't necessarily make it an organization per se. I think what makes something a DAO, right? Decentralized Autonomous Organization is when that group of people Thinks, first of all, thinks of themselves as an organization, which usually means they're, they're coordinating together in some structured way and usually means they have a treasury, right? So like HTTP doesn't have a treasury, right? Certain protocols on chain that are governed by a community don't have their own treasury. But I think if you include a treasury and a group of people managing that treasury with some kind of process... That's where it's a DAO as opposed to a quote-unquote hyperstructure. And I think a lot of hyperstructures have DAOs involved. Right? A lot of protocols, there's a foundation, there's a DAO, there's a development company or an operating company. You may have a number of legal entities involved with, with different purposes. Um, so I think this is a useful mental model. I guess to me, it sounds, the name hyperstructure sounds so big and yet, to me, having a protocol that's simply governed by its stakeholders actually sounds kind of simple and, and small in, in a really beautiful way. So I'm not sure if I, I would go with the, the term hyperstructure, but I definitely think it's a, an, an interesting distinction. What do you think, Humpty? Well, first of all, I appreciate you introducing me to new things to read. <laughs> uh, so I think your pod is pretty fun for that. You always kind of share different <laughs> articles that come into your uh, gravitational pull and then you introduce them and have these discussions live. This is the first time I hear this uh, term 
being used. So considering it was published early last year, maybe didn't catch on. Uh, or maybe I'm in the wrong circles um, and I need to expand my own uh, network of people that I'm talking to. But um, yeah, I mean, I think this idea of, you know, protocols that run forever, uh, that are maintained by a group of people who are you know, uh, not necessarily having to be in the same room, but are distributed around the world and can do so cryptographically, I think is incredibly powerful. And I think that's the reason why blockchains and blockchain technology is such an incredible space to be building in and uh, really uh, valuable, in my opinion, um, you know, technology that will power much of the internet as we know it in the future. Um, because, you know, as you said, there's protocols that exist today that have been in operation for decades um, that are fundamental to the way that we interact uh, with with the internet, with the web. Um, is 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 the if if your question is how do these overlap or do they overlap at all with DAO, uh, DAOs in general, or where the overlap is with DAOs? Yeah, I mean, I think. I remember it was fascinating when I first learned about DAOs, um, you know, and, and I would say DAOs in the terminology of DAOs because I've been working on DAOs since 2017 um, before they were called DAOs, right? Or at least before I knew what DAOs were. Um, but yeah, what I what really attracted me, the gravitational pull of DAOs uh, was that there was a way for people to organize um, in a decentralized fashion and be able to come to an agreement based on shared interests, shared values, um, and having some mechanism to make those decisions. So the cryptographic proofs, or in this case, maybe token voting, would be one way of achieving that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, for me, I think that DAOs, are a great facilitator of this technology. Uh, and certainly, I think I made a tweet about something similar uh, months ago, weeks ago. I don't remember. Uh, Twitter is like a decade and a couple of days uh, <laughs> where I said something to the effect that I was very excited about protocol DAOs because I felt like that was one of the more clear uh, use cases for DAOs, where there is this, you know, gr group of individuals who want to see, uh, who have an, an interest, who have an, uh, you know, an understanding, the knowledge to move a certain technology forward, uh, whether that is product design, technological design, incentives, so that uh, in a way that's decentralized. And one of the ones that I recently joined is um, the Farcaster DAO uh, or Purple mm -hmm. DAO. And I really am excited because a the people who are in that DAO are super you know knowledgeable but also super focused into their purpose for being in that DAO and moving certain things forward as an organization. Yep, and I, I think that's a great example. And actually, it's a good example that shows the difference between the DAO and the hyperstructure. I think Farcaster 
is the protocol or arguably the hyperstructure within which there will be a number of different organizations and stakeholders. Purple DAO is the DAO that says we're going to be the DAO that supports this ecosystem and we're going to fund projects in the space and bring people together. Um, so I think it, it also highlights nicely the difference between the two. Um, the second article, and I, I had not noticed that that other article was from a year ago, so thanks for calling that out. The other article uh, is actually from last week, and it's called On-Chain Hypercultures, The Context Fermentation Window. So this article builds on the idea of hyperstructures, but talks about hypercultures. And I think it, for me, it highlights one of the really cool things about Web3, which is the following. So we're mostly building technology. Like if you just look at the history of blockchain so far, it's mostly engineers and developers. It's not only, but it's mostly developers, engineers, building technology that makes new things possible. But fewer of the people who are like, oh, here's a technology that made something new possible. I have an idea for that new possible thing and I'm going to try to make that happen. And I think one of the new possible things that Web3 and crypto has made possible is these much more distributed forms of not only organizations and hyperstructures, but even cultures, right? The ability for a group of people to, to organize enough that you can have this emergence of a new type of global culture and, and, and sub intercultures that never could have existed before the internet and before blockchain um, is it, just so cool. And, and to me, it's very similar to the, the nature of DAOs, how DAOs make it possible to have organizations that are much more democratic than any organization that came before. That doesn't mean you have to do that, but that's the new possible thing that thanks to the technology of the DAOs, people can now go after. So we also got a, a question from the live audience. Thanks, uh, Joshua Hale, uh, one of my favorite crypto lawyers, um, asks, how does a DAO like Purple and Farcaster work together without either becoming overly burdensome on the, on the goals of the other organization? So um, I think uh, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I, I don't think I have an answer. I think this is maybe a good rhetorical question for just all of us to think about. Um, but I also think it's something you figure out over time. Right. So the Purple Dow, for example, was not even started by the same people who started Farcaster. In fact, I think the, the founder of Farcaster only recently joined the Dow. Um, so, um, you know, each ecosystem is different in a lot of ecosystems, the founding group of like one or five or a hundred, whatever people says, okay, we're going to start the foundation. We're going to start the DAO. We're going to start the protocol. We're going to build the app from a development company, and then we'll open it up to the whole community. In this case, um, you know, you have the founders of Farcaster who work for a private company that raised money from VC, uh, working on the open protocol and building the first app. And they didn't, they, they didn't even start, they didn't start a DAO. So to my knowledge, they had no intention of doing anything like that. But a different group that was really passionate about the product came together and said, we're going to start this DAO. Um, so I think it kind of emerges naturally. But anything you would add, Humpty, in terms of answering this question? Well, actually, so to, to clarify, I think a point that I made earlier, and I think it's been uh, kind of surfaced in this question, is there is a difference between a protocol DAO and a community DAO, right? So the protocol DAO, at least in the way that I think that it was being uh, defined in the hyperstructures article, would be if Farcaster itself as a protocol would decentralize and exit to community, as they say. And now the community is operating that protocol and the changes that are being made on that protocol. What Purple DAO is, and to the point that I think you made very clearly, is 
Purple Dow wasn't even uh, something that the founders and builders of Farcaster were intending or even started, uh, only joining recently. Um, I, I wasn't even aware of that. I thought they were at least like member numbers seven and eight or something like that. Um, but to that point, I think it really draws attention to this idea of the value of community and the significance of community in Web3 products and protocols where there are different stakeholders now that can have a voice and can have that voice represented um, to make changes in these private protocols. And so I would say that as Farcaster continues to grow, this these stakeholders, which include me now in the Purple DAO, as a user of the platform, can make my... Um, my 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 desires, my feelings, uh, heard and amplified by other people who believe the same thing as me, and then having the protocol itself, you know, make sense of that and say, okay, I see the community's asking for this. Let's put it through the protocol now, or if they're not decentralized yet, make those decisions as a as a group of centralized uh, developers to say the community is making these demands. This is within the scope of what we can do. Let's go ahead and build that, right? So I think there's also a differentiation that can be made in terms of the different types of DAOs that can operate within a protocol or product, right? In terms of the decision-making and the power that they have as well. Yeah, interesting. All right, I'm going to turn to the next set of news articles. Um, and uh, these are all kind of related to DAO design, the nature of token. So I'm actually going to go through all three because we're getting a little bit low on time for the news segment. And then uh, Humpty, I'll let you choose where you want to weigh in so you can listen for your, your favorite uh, article. Um, so first of all, uh, this one's from Cointelegraph. And the headline is, Token Hoarders Defeat the Purpose of Most DAOs. Study. The study also showed that decentralized organizations work best when they're built around a tight-knit group of focused participants. Well, one of the reasons I thought this was interesting is that those two things sound kind of uh, um, uh, non-compatible to me. They're, they're, uh, these statements uh, don't align. So one is saying small, tight-knit group of focused participants, which sounds to me kind of like token hoarders, right? It's like every, the, the small group of people has all the tokens. And then they're saying token hoarders defeat the purpose of most DAOs. You know, I think um, there's a lot of gray area and that's where probably most, most DAOs do live, which is you can have smaller groups of people that are most focused and interested in and contributing to the project. And you can have a lot of other people around that are not the token hoarders and they don't have the most vote, but maybe they're contributing in a small way or they just care about supporting the project financially or whatever it is. So interesting um, uh, statements made in that article. The next one is actually a tweet from Chase Chapman from a couple of weeks ago. And Chase says, things DAOs got wrong last cycle. Permissionless contributions, token-weighted voting, and fear of delegating power, which leads to lots of bureaucracy. None of this means that DAOs are dead. It just means we need to evolve. Okay, interesting. Turning to the third story in this section, this is a tweet from Loop, uh, which uh, his or her uh, handle is LoopXNFT. And Loop says, and I'm going to paraphrase because this is actually a, like an essay post, which I guess you can do on Twitter now. Um, the nouns DAO has a big problem, and it's bad. 
the most crucial part of a high functioning DAO is a fair vote. But right now there's something that's threatening this. So the author of the tweet essay thread, what, it's not a thread, whatever we want to call it, post, um, first summarizes NounsDAO. I'm just going to say, and we've talked about this a little bit on prior episodes, that NounsDAO is a very successful DAO in the sense that there are about 400 members and $60 million raised from those members. And they've also spent a good amount of money. Um, it's a popular DAO. Uh, the DAO has spawned something called Nouns Builder that lets other people create DAOs using the nouns model very easily. Um, people like to say it's as easy as like clicking, you know, one button, having gone through the process a couple of times, not quite that easy, but still it allows you without writing any code to launch a DAO that's a lot like nouns. And a lot of people have done that, including Purple DAO. That's the way Purple is run, uh, which we were just talking about. So the problem is that people are auctioning off their votes. That's the problem that's mentioned in the article. And I, we've heard about this type of thing. Um, I think it is... Is it Curve? I may be forgetting. One of the big DeFi protocols, they actually built auctioning off your vote into the system from the start. And the reason they did that was they said, it's something people can do, whether we like it or not. It's a free market. They can be, you can sell your vote. You can buy a vote. So let's just build it in the system from the beginning so that it's transparent, so it's done in a structured and trackable way. And then you know at least we have some visibility. And that's actually what's happening now with nouns is that there is a, a project that's, that's being built that allows nouns builders to uh, pool and auction off their votes so that you could have a group of, you could theoretically have 51% of the DAO. I don't think this is the intention, but 51% of the voters could come and say, we're going to auction off our 51% of the votes uh, to the highest bidder, right? And someone comes in because they want to take over the whole nouns DAO and becomes the highest bidder and buys all those votes. So um, kind of going in the direction of where I think Curve, if I'm rem remembering correctly, has gone. So um, we can see this is an example of what Chase mentioned and what that first article mentioned from Cointelegraph, where there's challenges related to the way we're doing DAOs today in terms of tokens, in terms of how do we delegate, in terms of people gathering a lot of tokens together. So Humpty, wh where do you want to pick and choose to comment on this, uh, these few stories? Yeah, so these are really great uh, points. And I'll try to summarize all of them as best I can. So this idea of decentralized organizations working best as tight-knit groups, I think one thing that really helped me understand DAOs and how they can be more efficient, uh, Reinventing Organizations is a book written by Frederick Laloux. It's an old book. Um, really from the perspective of decentralized organizations like uh, cooperatives. And there's tons of examples in that book in terms of high-functioning decentralized organizations and some of the things that enable them to work efficiently and successfully. And one of the points that is made repeatedly is that groups, smaller groups of people making decisions is much more efficient. That doesn't mean that a decentralized organization needs to be comprised of just one small group. I think one thing that we can see improving in the future is how one, let's call it a DAO with like hundreds of members, uh, thousands of members can create governance run by different groups of people who have 
interest and knowledge about a very specific area of operation and then having them govern that. Um, everyone, everyone else who is doesn't care or doesn't have the knowledge required to be able to make good decisions in that space of operation can definitely delegate their vote and should delegate their vote. So I think that's the point that Chase was making too. It's we should not be afraid of delegating our vote to other people. I think it just needs to be done in a way that permits for people who become delegates to be surfaced in some sort of decentralized and fair manner. Um, so many things that we see today in terms of like stewardship is the same people going across different protocols and becoming the top delegates because social equity, right? I am more popular. I have visibility across social media. I have visibility across another protocol. You will recognize me. And because of that, you will make an assumption that I am a great delegate, mm. a great steward for this protocol. That is not necessarily true. That just means mm. I have a bigger platform. There could be someone else that has equal or more um, you know, knowledge and could be a better delegate if they don't have that social equity. So they're unable to become voted or delegated to. So we need to surface um, these individuals better, uh, especially as in, in these large DAOs, if we want to segment, uh, you know, uh, voting by, by, by different uh, subgroups. And I think ENS was doing a pretty good job at this at one point. I'm not, I haven't followed them very closely recently, but they had different, um, different sub doubts, right? They had the meta governance and then they had the protocol and then they had the, uh, the social aspect in terms of like how they would use their funds and, and so on. And I think that's, that's kind of getting close to what I'm trying to say here in terms of like how you can start decentralizing the different types of governance and then how you can start creating different delegates within these uh, you know, sub uh, organizations within that DAO. Um, in terms of like buying and selling votes, uh, this goes back to what I was talking about with Orange Protocol. And again, potentially what we could be doing with Mosaic is this reputation-weighted voting, right? That moves away from just token systems for validating your worth as a voter or as a delegate. We mm. need to be able to get more information about my value to an organization, to a protocol, based on other activities that I um, am uh, participating in or contributing to, uh, you know, within these organizations and have that influence the value of our vote. So yep. just because I have one token doesn't mean that I'm not equal to or better than someone who has a hundred tokens at that role. So hopefully uh, I answered all three uh, through this example of how we can yep. be improving some systems and nice. please read reinventing organizations. Such a wonderful mm. read. Yep. Awesome. And I actually haven't read it, so I, I really need to check that out. Um, thank you. All right. Um, the next story, we'll just do one more. This is another tweet and it's related. It's from Optimism, um, which goes by Optimism FND, um, which is the foundation for Optimism. And Optimism says uh, a few days ago, it's a beautiful day to learn more about DAOs. This thread will explore the age old challenge of accountability which according to Lala Lavender's research is something many DAOs struggle to solve for. Here are some key findings from the research. And I'm just gonna skip the key findings actually. It's long and people can check this out. 
let's actually just use this as a way to segue into uh, the next part of the conversation with Humpty, which will be an interview. Um, you know, the, the question here is, how do we solve for accountability in DAOs? So do you want to just, Humpty, share your thoughts on that? And then we'll do a little bit of a reset for the second half of the episode and take a step back and ask you a little bit more about your journey. Sure. Did you want to uh, probably be a little bit more specific of what you mean about accountability in DAOs? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. So let me read the first few uh, tweets from the thread. So um, starts out, a strong strategy is nothing without solid execution. DAOs, just like corporations, often struggle to bridge this gap. DAO leaders can't just publish a vision and expect the DAO to enact it any more than, oh, where'd it go? Any more than developers can write a white paper and expect the DAO to build it. Almost all DAOs analyzed in this research have experienced a problem with accountability firsthand. Many have expressed concern that a lack of execution allows more centralized competitors to beat them. So how can we ensure that ideas are carried through to execution? DAOs have a few options, including incentivizing speed, experimentation, and competition. Some ways to do this are establishing a duocracy where initiatives under a certain threshold are automatically funded. Hmm, I haven't heard duocracy defined that way before. Or constrained delegation, delegation, which empowers small groups to manage larger budgets via multi-sigs, giving these groups full autonomy over execution. Okay. So it sounds like the issue here is getting stuff done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're saying, and it see, they seem to imply that in a lot of DAOs, someone writes a white paper and then expects it to come true or you sure. know, other people to work on it. Um, or, you know, uh, everyone comes together and says, let's go do this cool thing. But then it just kind of doesn't happen in the same efficiency that a centralized startup could do the same thing. So okay. how do we address these challenges? I, I tried to do a quick eye scan and all this, and I pride myself on being a fast reader. So I went through the whole thread. Um, and thank you for sharing this, because first of all, I want to just recognize optimism for being a pioneer uh, in the decentralized organization and governance space. Mm -hmm. I am very proud to say that Mosaic is launching on an optimism first. Mm. And that cool. is very intentional because a lot of what we are doing is influenced by um, many of the things that they've innovated and um introduced into the Web3 ecosystem. I think Optimism has done a fantastic job of iterating where many other really incredible projects, what other incredible projects started. I remember what Gitcoin did with its token distribution model and governance system and ENS then iterated on when Optimism did it and continues to do in terms of the retroactive funding and airdrops. I think that's the future, right? In terms of how we're going to be rewarding people for sustainably building on a protocol. So mm -hmm. hopefully that also touches a little bit on what we talked about earlier when it comes to decentralized protocols and uh, governance and activity and participation within those. So because of that, um, Mosaic is, is building there first. The point that's being made here, I think, is I think really supporting the statement I made just moments ago which was there needs to be hyper-focused groups that understand a given problem best um, compared to maybe the majority of people in that organization to take on these very specific challenges and solve them. 
And there needs to be systems for that incentivize people fairly for the work that they are going to contribute, but also hold them accountable for the work that they're going to contribute. Because mm-hmm. it's really easy, and I've seen this. Because, you know, I've been, I don't know if I mentioned it early on, but when I really learned what DAOs were in early 2020, or in 2020 sometime, I went full in. I remember I joined 100 plus DAOs because I was like, this seems like my vibe. I've been working in this space for years now, and now there's a word for it and people are getting excited about it. I want to build here. This is my home. Mm-hmm. And so I joined a ton of DAOs and, and almost immediately exited a lot of them <laughs> too because I was like, yeah. yeah, this is a mess. This is this is not you know, resonating with me. But some really stood out and I would say dozens. I stayed in dozens of them and have since streamlined to maybe under a dozen. Um, but the point is, one thing is people will raise their hands and say, I want to do this. I can do this. But there's no follow through. And some Mm. of that is because the incentives are lacking. There's no way of like properly incentivizing or good systems for incentivizing people for the work that they're doing. And two, there's no accountability for the work that they promise to do. And we'll give them all the money up front and very little work gets done. Or Mm. we'll give them some money up front and still pay them in the end when the work is not uh, of high level. So I think it's important to recognize people based on their specific abilities and provide them with a, a, a platform to be able to uh, verifiably attest to their abilities, uh, verifiably claim these bounties, if you will, and then verifiably prove that they were able to successfully accomplish what they set out to do and then verifiably reward them. And I use these words verifiably very intentionally because I think that's the whole point of decentralized identity, decentralized reputation, is there should be a way to signal individuals from a crowd based on their contributions and be able to reward them, uh, again, uh, you know, in a, in a way that is, that, that is consistent with that activity, with, that, with those contributions. I think much of the problems with DAOs through today has been the fact that they operate in a way where only a few people can make these decisions. And if you're not loud enough, if you're not popular enough, you won't be seen, Mm. you won't be heard. You don't have a platform. You need to build that social equity yourself. I think if we're going to be building in a decentralized ecosystem, we need to take advantage of the decentralized tools that allow us to be able to signal these individuals and reward them fairly. So, yeah, I think part of the problem of accountability is not being able to identify the people that should be working on this work. And then mm-hmm. there's no way to easily, um, you know, incentivize them throughout and hold them accountable um, once they have completed this work and then be able to continue to basically regeneratively uh, build on this work. Uh, within you know with with these tools so i think the tools exist but they're not necessarily talking to one another or people Mm. are not using them is that related to what you're building at mosaic maybe we could just start the second half of the show so the the just out uh interview uh we've done more than half of the time already but um 
Uh, tell us a bit about Mosaic, the project you're working on. And I understand you recently got some grants, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, so people obviously believe in what you're doing. Um, tell us more about what you're working on and why. Thank you. Um, yeah, so Mosaic, like I said, kind of riffs off of something that I learned uh, when I was building Orange Protocol last year. Um, and that is that decentralized data has the power to create better user experiences in Web3. What do I mean by that? The One of the really cool things about blockchain is that there is a lot of data that is uh, immutably stored on the blockchain, right? On a ledger, on a public ledger. And we can create tools to find meaning in this data. And that's what Mosaic uh, is building. So our first product, Mosaic Insights, will provide meaning to user activity across different protocols, platforms, applications. Right now, like I said, we're really focusing on building in the optimism uh, ecosystem. Mm -hmm. We have provision to the platform, optimism transaction data, optimism NFT data, optimism governance data. Um, and our first grantor, Ave, um, we have provisioned their liquidity data. We have provisioned their governance data as well, in addition to other types of data that they're uh, producing on their, on their protocol. And the reason for this is we want to give these brands, these projects, very, a very clear sense of how and where their users are active most. And the mm. purpose of that is so that either they can create products that better serve their community or so they could create better incentives for onboarding and retaining users uh, mm. in any of these different uh, products or platforms. So with Ave, for instance, we are providing them a set of insights that allow them to visualize how people are using their liquidity protocol in terms of the assets that they are lending uh, and borrowing from that platform, uh, their repayment history, right? All of this information allows you to paint a better picture, Mosaic, about your mm -hmm. user, right? Mm -hmm. So with that better picture, you can create better incentives to retain those users or to show other users, maybe from a competing product, that you are mm. willing to put money up front to reward people based on very specific usages of your platform. Mm. And I think in the traditional SaaS space, in the traditional Web2 space, customer acquisition, uh, customer retention, there are systems in place to be able to uh, onboard and retain people and identify how much value you find in each of these different areas of your business and put together systems to reward people financially uh, to continue using the platform in a way that is significant to you. Mosaic is taking that same concept and is doing that for the Web3 space using on-chain and quite unique to us, off-chain data too. Mm. So we're presenting a user's activity uh, through both of those different sources of data. Um, mm. And I'm excited to continue to work with more projects that are working on optimism to create a much more uh, kind of powerful picture of how users are using the optimism ecosystem in general. So be being on optimism, does that mean you're only pulling data from the optimism chain and off chain? 
or is it, is is that what you mean by kind of being on optimism first? Yeah. So at this point, we're a small team, and we we would love to say we're going to pull data from all the chains. Mm-hmm. Um, but even at Orange Protocol, where we had a bigger team, that was just not impossible. That was not possible. Um, mm-hmm. We ended up pulling data from Ethereum, Polygon, and BNB chain, and some of those came with grants, not all of them, but it was uh, supported by a much much bigger developer team. With Mosaic as a small team, we are having to be more focused so that we can uh, generate more value from the time that we're spending on building this this platform. Um, mm-hmm. The other is, of course, as I mentioned, we our values very much align with the values of optimism too. So mm-hmm. it just makes sense for us to start there. We do believe that the optimistic super chain, as you know, they've written, mm-hmm. is going to be where a lot of the L2 growth is going to happen in the future. We're mm-hmm. already seeing that with different projects choosing to fork the optimistic um, you know, roll up yep. and create their own. We're in talks yep. with projects like Metis. We're in talks with you know, projects like Mantle, all of which are using the optimistic roll up to create their own L2. So starting with optimism makes sense because we can then retool much more easily mm. and support other optimistic compatible uh, L2s in the future. Interesting. Yeah, I've even heard about L1s deciding to become L2s on Ethereum instead using the Optimism stack. I, I don't remember which one it was just this past week. But... Polygon would be an example. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess they're using ZK, but I think it might be a combination. I may be wrong here of Optimistic and ZK as well. Mm, okay, interesting. Cool. So going back to what Mosaic does, so it sounds like it's much broader than just DAOs, right? This is for entire projects to be able to understand their ecosystem, their users, how, how, what, how their users are interacting with their platform or their protocol with other protocols. Is there also a use case for DAOs? I mean, I, I'm just thinking about some of the problems we were talking about earlier. Is there also a use case for a DAO to use this, for example, to know which people to hire as contributors or who would be good people to delegate to? So, yeah, Absolutely. Just because we're building on optimism doesn't mean that we're not building for anyone that's using tools on optimism or some other chains in the future when we integrate them. DAOs are a significant customer in that they they have tools that operate on chain. So to better understand your community, we need to be able to be more informed in terms of how your community are using these Mm. tools. So if I'm a DAO and I have a token and I'm using that token for governance participation. Uh, I'm using that token for liquidity. Um, All of this can be introduced or already exists on Mosaic because we are provisioning data through Etherscan, for instance, or we're provisioning data from Snapshot. Um, We Mm. intend to add more off-chain data, such as Gitcoin grants in the future, so Mm. that we can show you how your community is contributing to your projects too not just how they are contributing in on-chain activities and liquidity, but also say you're a smaller DAO and you have a grant on Gitcoin, you want to see who's contributing to your grant, Mm, right? Or you're a bigger DAO and you have smaller projects that are, they have a Gitcoin grant. You want to see how your community is contributing to your ecosystem. So -hmm. at the end of the day, all of these different data points are going to allow you to paint a better picture of your membership and be able to reward them or incentivize them better as well. Yep. So have you guys thought about business model yet? I'm thinking it's probably too early, but I'm thinking it'd be very different working with 
like an Ave versus a small DAO, like purple DAO that wants to maybe understand its users better, maybe even just a, a person that wants to, you know, try to figure out what's going on on chain for their own purposes. Have you thought about how you're going to sell the product to different people or is that coming down the road? I mean, so we're very much inspired by the SaaS models. And so we would have a freemium product that would allow uh, for any user or organization to use the product to create uh, these different uh, insights from a multitude of data points that we have provisioned to the platform. There will be added features uh, that will be subscription only, and there will be some features that are probably going to be enterprise uh, only because of the mm. costs associated to them. One yep. of the things that we've we're, we're researching and looking to implement within the year is AI, as you know, has really taken a lot of the attention of uh, creators, developers, funders, uh, mm. because I think that it really unlocks a lot of value in the way that we would normally operate. In the case of Mosaic, we would use AI to basically accelerate the data graph that we're creating on our platform. And what I mean by that is right now, the team is bootstrapping a set of models to the platform so that it's usable. In the future, anyone, you or an organization mm. can come onto Mosaic and create your own models, which by the oh. way, you're going to be incentivized for creating, right? And yep. then AI will basically accelerate the creation of those models because <laughs> each model, by the way, is creating another point in a data graph that shows my activity, Humpty, on Snapshot with optimism and Snapshot on Ave, for instance. But also, more interestingly, in the future, my activity, because remember, a lot of these are EVM compatible, uh, optimism compatible blockchains, my activity on optimism and my activity on Arbitrum and my activity on Mantle as well. So it's really to our benefit and our customer's benefit to be able to see that grow and become a much more denser data graph where I can have a better understanding of how different users are using different applications. So mm -hmm. that again, as I, as a developer, am able to build more efficiently and understand how my customers are using my platform and where I should be building next. Cool. Cool. Makes sense. Okay. So some overlap between uh, what you're building and DAOs, a, a lot you could say. And you also mentioned that you're part of around a dozen DAOs, you know, previously many more, maybe now a little bit fewer, which is a lot. I mean, I, even as someone who works in the DAO space and talks to DAO people all the time, see a lot of people say they're too, it's, too, it's too overwhelming to be part of more than a few. Um, and I know I do have trouble keeping up with all the ones I would like to keep up with. Um, either way, that's it's cool that you're part of so many. Would you share with us some observations on over the past year, especially what is going right and what is going wrong with DAOs and, and especially what's going wrong? Because I, I hear, you know, from different corners of the Internet, different corners of the world of DAOs, some people get really frustrated, right? You have a bad experience with one DAO and sometimes you're ready to like write off DAOs in general forever. And maybe you're just feeling very passionate at the moment about what some DAOs are doing wrong. And so you write a thread about that. I would say also virtually everyone I know in the DAO space remains incredibly optimistic about what we're doing, what we've done, where we're going. Um, but even those folks would acknowledge that there's some you know, uh, 
big roadblocks or challenges we need to address. So what would you say are some of those highlights in terms of things we're doing wrong with DAOs? So I've been pretty um, vocal, both on social media and in some of the DAOs uh, that I'm that I'm actively participating to say that to agree with the statement that Chase made earlier, that there is a lot of improvement that we've we need to make uh, to improve DAOs and to basically on the next cycle to become a much more usable uh, product, right? Um, to make DAOs really something that are usable beyond maybe a niche group of believers and technology enthusiasts. And one of that is decision-making. You know, we need to, again, like something I mentioned earlier, we need to look at the tools that are at our disposal, um, some new, some old. Uh, DID is not new. And find ways to implement that to create systems that operate without the need of some sort of centralized in group of individuals that make decisions for everyone else. Um, that's one. I think we need to be better at using the tools that are at our disposal. So one of the things that I think I've said uh, recently and say often is this space is really about experimentation. Uh, we are nowhere close to being done or, you know, uh, having anything of significance. At this point, we are experimenting with the technology at our disposal and building really interesting applications and user experiences. So we need to experiment more. Um, and I know sometimes that's hard because either, and I think I, I heard this before, we're afraid of what that may do to the token valuation because that's important to some projects. Um, and the other is, you know, and, and it, it, and I think this is probably more true now than before is there aren't enough, there isn't enough incentive, right? Because a lot of the token valuation has mm. plummeted to many of these projects. There isn't enough incentive to be able to do the work necessary to build in this mm. space. And to that, I would say if we are starting primarily with the idea of how we can pay people to do this work, we're starting off on the wrong foot already. Reinventing Organizations, again, this book that I talked about uh, earlier, mm -hmm. maybe actually a different book, and I'll have to look it up and share it with you later, talks about the role that incentives play in you know, these these. Maybe they didn't use decentralized systems, but they use another word where if you pay someone to do something, their incentive to do, to do something will now be the financial instrument or financial mm -hmm. gain. If you are, if people are doing something because they believe in what you're doing, they believe in the value that they're extracting from that is the fact that they're being able to contribute in something that is aligned to who they are. That's where we should be starting. And I mean, I've, I've experimented with this myself. As you know, I run the Crypto Sapiens podcast. And Crypto Sapiens is, for all intents and purposes, a sub-DAO of Bankless DAO, right? Mm -hmm. So we operate with the same token that Bankless DAO operates. We have the bank token, and the bank token is not worth very much right now, unfortunately. So mm -hmm. the incentives that we can provide 
our membership are very few, right? And we, we can't say we're going to pay you a thousand dollars per day. That's basically our treasury. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's just impossible. Mm-hmm. So what we had to do is we had to be very clear about our values and our belief systems, why we're building the platform that we've built, um, what the types of contributors that we would like to be associated with our project, with our product, the types of individuals that we bring onto the stage to speak, have a platform, share the platform with them. Um, and then basically have that permeate the entirety of, uh, of the product of the organization. And when people join, the first thing they say is, how can I happily do this for free? And again, it's important to understand that I'm not saying that they should do it for free. It's that their, their purpose for contributing isn't because how much can I earn from doing this? The mm-hmm. first thing they want to do is they want to participate. They want to contribute. They want to be active in this project because they believe in the vision, the mission, the values of the of the project. With that base, anything else is a cherry on top. It's like, look, here's our treasury. I'm being very transparent about it. It's available on our multi-sig. You can see how very little we have, okay? But we want to share this with everyone as best as possible to make sure that they're incent- that their that their work is being properly incentivized beyond that you want to do it. Mm-hmm. And so having transparent systems for being able to um, share the reward mechanism and rewards themselves, but also allowing for the ownership and decision-making to be done by those same individuals that are doing the work. Yep. At the very beginning, it was really just me saying, okay, great job, here's some bank, great job, here's some bank. But then I started realizing that people were coming in for the bank. They were like, oh, yeah, I want to do this job. What's well, How much is it worth? And I was like, no, that's, hmm. that's we're going in the wrong direction. And so within the last year, we've been kind of pivoting to this new system that I've just kind of described. And people are coming in and saying, I want to contribute because I believe in the work that y'all are doing here, and I want mm-hmm. to be a part of that work. I want yep. to have that badge that says I am a, contri- a crypto sapiens contributor on my chest and wear it proudly. And so now these individuals are also uh, advocating for and verifying each other's contributions and saying, Hey, maybe more of this and less of that, because that's the, these are the, the, the milestones for the project. And that's, what's going to be able to get us to reach those uh, yeah. much more efficiently and, and quicker. So Sorry, I, I want to share your question. No, it's great. <laughs> I, I love it. It's one really, a couple really great points about um, what's going on in the space of DAOs. And certainly one challenge we have, whether we call it a failure or just the nature of things is that all our tokens are worth less, right? I think one of the really interesting things I tell my friends and family and acquaintances about crypto, you know, they always, for the first thing is, oh, let me show you what tokens I bought or uh, I haven't really wanted to buy any tokens, which to us, that's like, no, 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 that's not my, that's not what I'm saying. That's not why I brought up crypto is not just about the tokens at the same time, because almost everything in crypto is financialized, like every project, nonprofit, for-profit, volunteer, whatever, because they, we all have tokens and that's part of how we fund our work. Um, when the market goes down, stuff in crypto goes down five times as much, however you want to quantify it. And so all of us are struggling right now with the value, with the lower value of all of our tokens. 
Um, you know, uh, what, one thing I want to uh, mention, because I've always thought this is very interesting about the topic of paying people for their work versus not paying them or just thinking about what it is that's motivating them. So for my undergraduate thesis, I reviewed literature on basically this topic. This was 15 plus years ago, uh, and I don't remember my references, so take this with a grain of salt. But the idea was that, okay, so let's say on one hand, you have a totally volunteer activity, like we're going to help uh, build a house, right? Whatever, fix a, fix a, a community, a community's infrastructure. And you ask people to do it totally volunteer. You might get, let's say, X number of people participating, and those people will have Y uh, uh, impact in terms of because they did it out of the goodness of their heart, they're why likely to want to do it again, because just doing something creates this, I guess, like a confirmation bias in your own head. It creates the conditions for you to actually believe even more in the thing. And then you come back and you volunteer again. So there's this positive uh, in reinforcement loop that happens with volunteering. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum, let's say instead we had said, hey, we're going to give away a free uh, we're going to pay you $100 an hour for all this work. Uh, you're going to get like 100x people coming or maybe 10x. You get way more people coming to the event. But then you you completely el eliminate that why effect, which is actually convincing these people that they like the activity and making them want to do it again. And so you're not having that same positive reinforcement loop. And so the optimal uh, scenario is somewhere in between where you're not pay paying people anywhere near $100 an hour, but maybe you're giving them like a free jacket, for example, a cool looking jacket or t-shirt or maybe free food while they're there. That will get more than X people to come, right? Maybe 2X without reducing Y at all or by very much. And so you're still having the positive reinforcement loop with more people participating from the start. And so somewhere in between for each type of project or activity is the optimal point of reward for this type of kind of volunteer oriented, you know, kind of mindset or, or organization where you are encouraging people to come with incentives and you have the positive reinforcement loop. So I wonder if Bankless actually finds itself somewhere around the optimal point in that regard in terms of, you know, there being some reward, um, but uh, still uh, this kind of uh, psychological effect. Uh, maybe I'll just bring up one criticism I've heard from other people I don't 100% agree with, but there's something to it, which is, is it unfair or uh, privileged, certainly privileged of us to say, hey, it's we want to do something where people work for free or they want to work for free when there are a lot of people in the world who can't afford to work for free? Um, any thoughts on that point of view? I mean, how do you reconcile that with the desire to um, be around, you know, the type of people who want to volunteer because that they're great people. A hundred percent agree with the statement that it is not fair to ask people to work for free. And I think that's why I stated earlier that it is about starting with the goals and values alignment first, and then creating the incentive mechanisms Second, because if you start with the incentive mechanisms first, again, it's just a financial play. How can I make money doing this? And it's fair that some people want to make money doing this, but I don't believe that that should be the primary influence for you wanting to do something, especially in this space. Um, I think people should understand the project or the organization that they wish to uh, associate with. Um, so for any Web3 project, you're 
values should be written clearly somewhere. If not, this should be your 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 website, your documentation should be written in a way that speaks very loudly about why you're doing things. I'm a big fan of a manifesto for that reason uh, versus a white paper. I think most projects could use with a manifesto. In fact, I'm writing the Mosaic Manifesto right now um, because it is a core truth, a core belief of me as a founder, as the uh, core group of uh you know, developers, contributors are coming into this project early to build it out so that anyone who uses the product, whether you're an organization, whether you're a, a customer, you understand the benefit, but you also understand the purpose from a much higher level. And I say that only to, again, uh, reiterate or, or, or emphasize the fact that when you join a DAO, you should understand very clearly why they exist, why the founders chose to create that in the first place, what their personal beliefs are, because I promise you that's going to influence very heavily mm -hmm. into the way that, op that, that DAO will operate in the beginning. Um, and once you understand that, go in and try to understand how you can contribute and find ways to become incentivized financially for doing that work. The way that we also can improve the incentive systems is, again, this idea of distributed ownership, where the individuals that are doing the work should be the ones stating how much they should be making, right? So I always, at CryptoSapiens, say, I'm not the one that's going to tell you how much you're going to make. I could tell you what our base rate is, and you can tell me how much time you, you need to do to spend that, and then mm. you will be remunerated based on that time. Or you can define a role with a set amount to be paid monthly. And then the group will vote on whether that is acceptable mm. or not. And who gets to do it, right? Much, yeah, based on yeah. you put the proposal forward saying, I want to host a series of 12 episodes. Rachel, by the way, who just recently interviewed you on the Crypto mm -hmm. Sapiens podcast. Uh, yeah. Wonderful interview. If you haven't checked it out, go to our you you. Know, YouTube and our Twitter and check it out. Um, she put a proposal forward for the new series basically to lead the podcast and said, I'm going to be doing the 12 week season. Here's how much I need to get paid for doing that. Put it forward to the group. The group said, looks good. We have it in yep. the treasury. We need it because Humpty doesn't have the time to run the podcast. Like he used to, he's busy yep. building mosaic. Mm -hmm. Now we have a second uh, producer coming in. And I said, Rachel set the bar now in terms of how you need to present um, what you're asking for and what you want to do, and the group will vote on it, right? We don't have a token, but we're a small enough group. We're like six, seven people, and we go, that looks good. We have that in the budget. Let's go. Or, you know what? We need to make adjustments because you're not going to be producing it live, or you are going to be producing. Like all of these variables, now the group has a mm. say, and the individual doing the work is the one stating what their value is to. Yep. You know, I also think if we think about uh, just going back to this problem of asking people to work for free or partly for free, um, I think a lot of DAOs are not, they're not just replacing traditional organizations, right? It's not just a new way to do a for-profit startup or a new way to do a nonprofit company, right? A lot of DAOs are somewhere in between companies and communities, and they can, it can also be one or the other, but this space in between, I mean, even people in the poorest places in the world, 
they're not getting paid for everything they do, especially in community, right? They, they, they effectively volunteer, whether they think about it that way or not. They might do stuff at the local school. They might help out with stuff around the community. Certainly a lot of the social endeavors that they engage in or sports or whatever it is, right? A lot of, they do volunteer a lot of their time. So I also think it's unfair to think that just because someone is not wealthy that they, they can't volunteer their time, um, especially for an organization that's more like a community than, than a company. Um, well, that's a I good differentiation you, to make, right? Right. Community yeah. is such an important thing, has been a very important thing to business for a long time, but we didn't have the necessary incentives for those communities or mm. ownership to share you know, with that community. Or governance tools even, right. right? I mean, if Nike said, we want to give all our customers a vote, depending on how many sneakers you've bought in the last year, you know, maybe now they know how many sneakers you've bought, but they didn't have a way to give everyone a token that allows them to vote on chain, you know, in, in a way that's practically free to Nike and actually govern something, right? It would have been at least at like more of a marketing ploy where you're telling them they have power, but then you can back out at any time. Whereas now Nike could say, come join the Nike Dow, where we give you a million dollars a year to spend however you want, charitably or for product design, whatever. That's engaging. So a bit of a, not a shell, but a bit of a looking to the future. Mosaic, when we first started talking about it and kind of just riffing off of like what it could be, we believe that Mosaic could be a tool for the adoption of Web3 by traditional brands. Mm. And so we're starting to see a lot of brands play experiment in the space. Tiffany... Nike, Adidas, they all did different collaborations with Yuga and uh, Artifact, you know, through acquisitions or just straight up collaborations um, to interact with the community, right, in the Web3 space and see how they could build with community. They have very little information about the Web3 space at large. Wouldn't it be great if there was a tool like Mosaic that can give them insights into their NFT yeah. holders and how they're interacting with the entire space at large to come in more uh, intentionally and say, we're going to build this new product because this is what our customers are doing in this space. So this is of interest and of value to them. And this is going to be our V1 product on which we're going to build on. Data is what allows you to make better decisions. And so Mosaic intends to provide this data to the traditional Web2 space mm -hmm. to continue that idea of like bringing in the next million billion users to Web3. By the way, what you're doing to me is table stakes. Like it's, it, and I don't mean it's easy or simple or that it's already being done. I mean, it has to be done. And like, it's, it's a given that a brand or anyone in crypto would want what you're building. So I think it's, it's a really smart thing to, to be going after. I mean, re relatedly, you know, when I think about big brands and big companies getting into crypto and, you know, believing that DAOs will be a really powerful way for them to engage their customers, what we're building also feels very important because big brands are not going to go start a DAO without a legal and regulatory framework in place. Right. They're not going to just do what a lot of people in Web3 have done, which is go start it now and worry about legal stuff later. So I think it's it's a great use case for kind of the structured legal systems that we're building in MyDAO for bigger companies that want to get involved in DAOs or Web3 to be able to really solve legal first 
and then build the technology rather than expecting to do it the other way around. Well, you said you, one of your questions earlier was what are DAOs doing wrong today? I think that's one of them. They're, they're not considering yeah. the legal implications of organizing people uh, in the way that they are. Legal structures are absolutely necessary to be in place for DAOs. Um, I'm a strong believer of that. Some people might uh, argue that not all DAOs need a legal framework. If I'm going to be a member of a DAO, I would be 100% more comfortable. Yeah. And I think in the near future, we'll demand that it yep. has a legal structure in place. Otherwise, I can't join it. It's just, it's yeah. too much risk on my side to right. join a DAO that doesn't have a legal framework. Yep. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I totally agree. And and maybe I'll just do the quick ad I, I normally do at the end because we're coming up on the conclusion anyways that, you know, at MyDAO, we, that's what we do is legal and regulatory frameworks for DAOs. We have a partner network of over 300 Web3 and DAO lawyers and tax advisors that we can connect people with for free. Um, you don't have to buy our product to get access to that. Um, and if you are a lawyer and you're interested in being a part of our partner network, obviously, please reach out as well and we can fit you in you know, get to know your your particular um, areas of expertise and, and help find you more clients by connecting you with the clients. Um, so since we are about a time, uh, Humpty, would you also uh, share with everyone, where can people find you and Mosaic on the web or on social? Yeah, uh, mostly active on Twitter at Humpty Calderon, though now with it becoming X, I'm not quite sure uh, <laughs> how active I'm going to be on Twitter or if it's going to continue to exist as we know it. So I am also very active on Farcaster. So I am at Humpty on Farcaster. And I say I'm probably posting there 10 times a day versus Twitter maybe once every two days. So it goes to yep. show where my attention is. And if you really wanted to connect with me, you can go there. Um, Mosaic is Mosaic Fun on Twitter, uh, at Mosaic on Farcaster, and the website is mosaic.fun. Keep an eye out for our insights platform coming out in our private beta soon. I would highly encourage if any of this was useful to you, if any of this was interesting to you, please go sign up for the beta. I uh, just created the new type form on there uh, this weekend. So you can go to mosaic.fun, sign up uh, to the wait list and be happy to start a conversation with you via email and send a demo as soon as that is live and uh, get you onboarded as soon as it is ready to go as well. Awesome. And we'll make sure there are links to all these things and also the book, uh, Reinventing Organizations, in the show notes. Um, a really awesome conversation. If people want to find me on social, I'm also on Farcaster at The Thriller. And by the way, if anyone needs an invite to Farcaster because it's almost open but not completely open, let either of us know. We probably both have enough invites to go around. Um, and on Twitter, which I only uh, during this episode, I was like, why do I have all these X's on my tabs? Like, what, what is this thing? I, I didn't realize I visited this website. Oh, that's Twitter. <laughs> so interesting. New color, new logo. On Twitter, I'm 0xThriller and my DAO is MyDAODS. That's M-I-D-A-O-D-S or MyDAO.org. Humpty, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome having you here again and, and getting to chat with you again. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. We need to meet uh, IRL soon because uh, <laughs> yeah. we're pretty much neighbors. <laughs> uh, permissionless? Oh, well, yeah, we should just meet up here, but I'll probably see you at Permissionless next. You'll see me at Permissionless. And the Farcaster meetup is this Thursday. So hopefully oh, really? I'll see you there. Yeah, it's in, in LA? Venice. Hmm? Oh, 
Okay, well, I, I will try to come to that. And Maida is going to exhibit at Permissionless, which which should be fun. So everyone should come uh, check us out there. Quick legal disclaimer. Uh, obviously, as you hear from a lot of all the podcasters say, but it's true. This is not legal advice, especially because we're not lawyers. But even if we were, you know, we'd have to understand the particulars of your case to be able to give you legal advice. Also, not financial advice. Um, this is uh, all business advice or just for fun and entertainment and education. So again, Humpty, thank you so much. And thanks everyone for tuning in.